there we go. That's all. Oh, I'm so glad we've got beautiful pastors here. Daryl, you've confirmed my message this morning when you talked about first love and marriage. So thank you. <laughs> I'm on the right track. <laughs> um, and this message I have today, for me, it's been quite a long one in the making. And when I felt God prompting me to share it today, I was a bit nervous. I was like, Spirit, how do I share this? Because what Jesus has done for me, especially over the last couple of years, has been a heart change in the way that I relate to him. So I want to talk today about how Jesus has been revealing this facet of his character to me that has been really personal and intimate. And that is the finding of Jesus as the bridegroom, me and you as the bride and what it really means to surrender to him. And so be warned, you may start to get emotional, a bit sentimental, feeling a bit romantic with all this bridal talk. And I, um, I have no doubt that all the men in the room will be just praying they can go and get married through the marriage process all over again. All right? If I haven't met my goal, then let me know. <laughs> um, but first, I just want to invite the Spirit here. And Holy Spirit, I just ask, that you come, you come and fill my mouth with your words. I want this to be your message to reach people's hearts today. I pray that you make the word that is spoken alive and active in everybody's heart, that we would all leave with a renewed desire and a passion to forsake all other loves and to go deeper with you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So first, I really want to introduce the bridegroom. And I'm going to start back in Exodus 22 when God is giving the Israelites a set of laws about how they should manage aspects of their life, like um, family, worship, warfare. Um, and one of those laws mentions the dowry. And it says, If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the dowry for virgins. So what we find is there is this thing called a dowry, which is also called a bride price or a bride wealth. And it's a custom of the Hebrews before getting married. It's a specific price in the form of, it could have been goods, livestock, land or money, which is paid by the bridegroom or his family and it's given to the bride's parents. And so we see this in Genesis quite early on when Jacob has nothing else to offer but his hands and his hard work to be able to secure Rachel as his bride. And so he has to work for Laban for seven years. And of course he gets tricked into marrying Leah and the poor guy. He's got to work another seven years. Now, man, that is 14 years to wait for the bride that he wanted. And the only appropriate answer to that is she's worth it. Yes? Okay. Um, but why did they have this custom? Well, when I went into researching it, I feel that the Western world has very much misinterpreted what the, the bride price is. It's, it was never meant to demoralise women. It was me never meant to buy the bride... Um, Hebrew women were actually very valued and highly prized in the family home. They were the ones who were helping and offering their hard work. And so to have a woman leave the home, it was actually a loss to the family. And so it took a lot of negotiating and bargaining to even establish these marriages to begin with. And so that's why we see uh, the older men marrying younger women, because it took the men such a long time to save up this wealth to even have a bride to begin with. And so the dowry was never meant to, um, you know, be something that was a bad thing. It was, it was a means for the bridegroom to prove his worthiness as a suitor. It was showing that he was capable of adequately providing for his bride. It was meant to be a protection for women 
to ensure that they weren't taken advantage of, but rather that they were taken care of. And so where am I going with all this? Well, Jesus is revealed to us in Scripture as the bridegroom. Jesus himself says in Matthew 9.15, it says, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken from them. And then we see John when he's trying to convince the Jews and his disciples that he is in fact not the Christ, but he was the one to come before them. He says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, John, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So we know that Jesus had to keep all the laws, all the commandments, all the customs that God has ordained. So what did Jesus pay for his bride? Well, we know that. He know he, we, he paid the ultimate sacrifice. He paid with his life's blood and he paid with his own flesh. And I'm sure at some stage all of you have looked at your husband or your wife or your children and you thought, I would lay my life down for you. And the scriptures would back you up. It would say, yes, you would in fact lay your life down for someone you love, someone who loves you back, maybe even a righteous person. But would we lay our life down for an unrighteous person? Someone who's committed atrocities, unspeakable things. Would we lay our lives down for someone who's hurt us? Or blamed us? Or mocked us? You know, Jesus is the perfect representation of a sacrificial bridegroom. His love is agape love. His love is unconditional. It's just so unmatched in its genuineness, in its mercy, in his grace, in his understanding. You know, Christ looked down at us in the filth of sin with a helplessness, no way out, and he said, I still see value in them. I still see value. I I will pay whatever price is necessary. I will redeem them, and I'll show you what happens to those people when I get my spirit in them. They're worth it. And, you know, God says we're a trinity. He says we're not just flesh, we're spirit, soul, and body. And so he's paid the dowry to claim the whole being of a man back to himself. He paid the price spiritually. We know he was a righteous man who led his life perfectly without spot or blemish. And then he took the whole filth of the sin onto himself so that we could live righteously, so we could live on eternally, our spirits in heaven with him. And then he paid soulfully, you know, by experiencing all the hardships this life has to bring. You know, he was tempted and tested at every point, mentally by the enemy. How, I mean, could you go into the desert and fast for 40 days and 40 nights? He was questioned and mocked and beaten by people who said they knew God. He was abandoned by his closest friends. He was rejected. He was a man of many sorrows. Um, He paid the price physically then. He sacrificed comfort and divinity and glory to come into a mortal body with limitations. You know, then he physically laboured all over, casting out demons out of people, healing all the sick, providing abundant food. The scripture says through his poverty we might become rich. So that means all our needs will be met. He doesn't want us to be in lack and and wanting food. He wants those needs met for us. He's commanded the weather, you know, proving he could adequately support all his bride's needs. He is unmatched in his sacrifice and his offering to the bride. And, you know, we've all seen the Disney movies where the, the princess comes in and gets saved by the prince. 
and then they skip right on to that happily ever after. But ladies, gentlemen, we know they've missed the middle bit. We know that this life here is hard. It's not always romantic. But I want to encourage you today to see your bridegroom differently. He is different. He isn't earthly. He doesn't leave wet towels on the floor. He doesn't leave hair in the sink. He doesn't take a weekend off to go play golf with his buddies. You know, he's riding in on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth to slay the wicked and all the things that have hurt us and sweeps us off our feet and he's going to come in and save us. You know, he doesn't leave when it gets hard. He doesn't go quiet when you need to hear his voice the most. His banner over you is love. You know, and when you open the heart of that Bible, in the heart there is a song, Song of Solomon's. And if you're reading that through an earthly perspective of a man and wife, you're missing the whole part, I think. If you read that book through Jesus as the bridegroom and you as the bride and him pursuing that bride, that book will open up. You know, there's a part in songs where it says the bride is looking up at these mountains and she's looking up and she's saying, it's so hard, look how high they are. I can't go up there. No way, I'm going to stay here in my lukewarm Christianity. I'm just going to stay here. It's going to be comfy. I'm I'm safe. I'm all good here. And the bridegroom says, "Uh uh-uh, I need you to come up this mountain with me. I need you to come now because this is how you mature. This is how you will grow. And I will be with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I will take you up here. And you watch. You just watch what I do in you. And, you know, we can have these preconceived ideas of Jesus because of the earthly relationships we've experienced. But he's different. He will never make you unsure of his love. He will always be truthful and faithful. He will tell you when you're doing the wrong thing. Why? Because he desires holiness and he desires righteousness and he calls you to something higher than yourself. And I think that's beautiful, you know, that he convicts your heart in loving kindness and he gives you such grace when you stumble and when you genuinely repent, when you say, I've missed the mark and I want to turn and I want to do it your way, Jesus, he says, great, I'm going to remove that thing as far as the east is from the west and I will choose to forgive you and I will choose not even to remember it. That's love. He doesn't even hold it against you. And he says, you know, I've seen you from the time you were born. I've seen you right through. I've seen the the schoolyard bully hurt you. I've seen the teenage years where you're just... you're just broken and you're lost and then I've, I've seen the failed marriage or whatever it is. I've seen it all. I've seen the people that have hurt you. But I'm going to ask you to forgive them. And I'm going to ask you to walk into a room with that person there and I don't want you to have bitterness, resentment, frustration or even anger at that person because you're going to come to me and I'm going to bind up those wounds and I'm going to get the glory when I piece you back together. That's love. You know, take notice of how fiercely protective God is of his bride. He says, the battle is mine. I will repay. Leave judgment to me. And if you think it stops there, he does even more. You know, a Jewish bridegroom would actually give his bride personal gifts as part of the betrothal. So it might be a ring or jewellery or money. And then they would seal their contract um, by signing something called the ketchuba. And together they would drink a cup of wine. So this, at this point, they're technically married, but they haven't had the wedding yet. 
And so what happens is the bridegroom at that point would then go away. He would leave for a long time to go and prepare their home before they had the wedding. And so the gifts that were given were actually meant to be a way of preparing her, uh, the bride for the return of the bridegroom. They were meant to be a way of reminding her that the bridegroom was returning. And so it's no surprise then that our bridegroom gives us gifts. And Paul tells us every good and perfect gift is from above. And so what gifts have we been given? Well, we know we've been given the gift of eternal life. We've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then through the Holy Spirit living in with us, we're then given other gifts to share with others. You know, the gift of prophecy, healing, words of wisdom. So those beautiful gifts are meant to be a way to remind us that our bridegroom's right here. He's right here in our heart and he wants to draw other brides into covenant relationship with him through those gifts. And so I've just had this like revelation that our earthly marriages, whilst beautiful, and some of us do have beautiful marriages, they are still shadowing. They're still like seeing in a mirror. They're like a reflection, um, like a training ground almost for the real thing. Our real marriage, you know, the marriage here is this big, but our real marriage is going to be lasting eternity with him. He's our real bridegroom. And so at this point, I want to move on to the bride. And I know as women, we have to look at scripture and see sons, and we have to refer ourselves as sons. So men, you're just going to have to get comfortable with being called the bride. Okay? And so as I just mentioned, the Hebrew bridegroom, he will go away to prepare a place for him and his bride. And Jesus does the same for us. In the scripture it says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And so we know Jesus is returning. But what do we do with the time while we're waiting? Well, let's go back to the Hebrew bride. So what will happen is the man would leave and the bride would remain to prepare herself. She was expected at that time... Because it could be nine months, could be over a year to wait. She was expected to be observed for her purity, her virginity, to make sure she wasn't pregnant to anyone else. So we know it was at least nine month wait. She was expected to show her dedication to her one and only. She was expected to consecrate herself and prove to all other suitors that may come past, uh-uh, I am taken, I am taken. To prove that she was ready for marriage. She was to use that time. And in my experience over the last few years, my ability to be dedicated and obedient to Jesus has been from a foundation of surrender. What have I been willing to surrender to him? And I tell you what, it is incredibly hard to be obedient to someone you haven't fully surrendered to. Surrender means to yield. It's voluntary. It means to give oneself over to the possession of um, it's to the power, the control of another. It's even a battle term. You know, surrender is to yield. It's to imply giving up all rights to the conqueror. And in James 4, it says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit yourselves. And I take that as surrender yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Draw near to God first and then he will draw near to you. And oh boy, that's been true for me. But in Genesis, we see Rebecca is asked by Abraham's servant to return with her. She's never met Isaac, never laid eyes on him, and yet she's asked to give up her home, her lifestyle, the people she loves, 
And the scriptures just say she went willingly. She just went willingly. Why? Because she knew it was God's will. She knew it was so perfectly designed in the way it happened that it was God's will and she didn't want to be outside of that. She just surrendered and said, I'm going to go. And you know, Jesus invites so many of us to the wedding. It says there's many guests are invited to the wedding, but not everyone will choose. You can choose to be a bride. You can accept Jesus' proposal or not because he will not force our hand. He is a gentleman. He won't force his way in because he knows it comes with a cost. It comes with a cost to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow him. He expects obedience and surrender if you're going to say yes to him. You know, this is what leads to intimate fellowship, I believe. And it's hard because the flesh does not want to die. You know, the spirit is willing. The spirit wants to pray 24-7. It wants to commune with God and fellowship with God and wake up in the middle of the night and say, hello, let's chat. The flesh is weak and we've got to reverse that. And this explains why the first few years of my Christian experience were just so unnecessarily hard. I was just stuck between following the world and following Jesus. So I had a list of idols ahead of, ahead of him and obvious sin, obvious sin in my life. And I'm going to be candid and say when I truly looked inside and realized it was me that needed to change, not God, you know, I realized I was unsatisfied in my relationship with God. I was surviving, but I was not thriving. And I knew there was more. I was seeing these people at church that were hearing from God and, and these gifts were on display. And I'm like, I had none of that. And, you know, I knew that if Jesus had come down in front of me and said the question that he asked Peter, if he had stood there and said, Alicia, do you love me? Alicia, do you agape love me? Are you all in for me? Have you surrendered everything to me? Do you trust me with your life? Do you even filio love me? Do you even love me like a brother? I would have said no. It's awful. Because I couldn't truly love someone I didn't know. And I had to make that decision to pursue him no matter the cost to me. You know, he will draw near to you. And continue to reveal yourself in a deeper way, but you have to be a yielded vessel. You have to be. Paul says, do you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God with your body. And you know, this story of Mary and Martha, I've recently watched a teaching and it's just completely opened up to me and it says, Because a lot of us think Mary is pitted against Martha. But God's saying, be Mary before Martha. Be Mary to become a Martha. You know, Mary cultivated a life at Jesus' feet. She just came out of the expectations of her life. She was meant to be in the kitchen making sandwiches for Jesus. She was meant to be doing all the wifely things. But she's just like, no, I'm going to come out of that. And when Jesus was in the room, she was at his feet, sitting, listening to him, willing to be taught. And when Martha complains about Mary not helping her, Mary doesn't even retaliate. She just let Jesus fight her battle. You know, she's totally blocked off to everything that's happening around her. She just says, and Jesus says, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. Just this one thing. And Mary has chosen it. She's chosen to sit at my feet. She's chosen the good part. And then when her brother Lazarus dies, Mary doesn't even question Jesus' authority or his ability or his power. She just says, 
I don't understand why this has happened, Jesus, but I'm choosing to sit at your feet because I know nothing is impossible for you. And I'm sure many of us, we've all had experiences in our life with sickness and, and lost children and, and you know things that we just can't explain. We've prayed about it. We've fasted about it. We've, we've taken authority over it and nothing changes. Or something devastating happens. You know, I've had children that I've held in my hand and I don't understand. But I chose to sit at his feet. I chose to sit there and say, you're bigger. You will make beauty for ashes. You will bring something beautiful out of this that I can't see. That's love. That's vulnerability. That's sitting with Jesus and saying, you're it for me. I don't care come what may in the future. You're it. And I'm here. I'm here to be with you. You know, and, and then Mary later comes with this alabaster flask of very costly perfume. And this was her inheritance. You know, this would have been given by her mother or her father. And it was worth a year's wages if it was in our time. This was her security, her livelihood. You know, this was going to sustain her. And she, she just pours it out on his feet, the whole lot, on his feet and wipes it with her hair. It's just like, she's just saying, I'm in, Jesus. And all the disciples around are going, oh, what are you doing, Mary? Like, that could have been used to feed the poor. And Jesus is like... This will be written as a memorial to her. She's done for me a sacrificial act of love and this will not be taken from her. She will be remembered in heaven for eternity for what she's done for me. And you know, my dear friend Kathy, one of my pastors from Ballarat, she, she allowed me to share her anecdote about being Christ's bride. She said, I don't know about you, but I don't want to get to the wedding and marry a perfect stranger. And the truth is, neither does Jesus. He doesn't. Think about how much time gets invested into your husband or your wife when you first meet. You know, you don't want to purposely hurt them. You don't want to be away from them. You want to spend as much time as you can with them. We want to experience the joys and the memories with this person. And we would just want to do things for that person without expecting anything in return. We just want to give them beautiful gifts and just see their face light up. You know, this for me is what I think is the fear of the Lord. And I know there's the fear where there's judgment and there's a wrath of God and it's, it's entirely necessary because there is wickedness and that needs to be punished absolutely. But there is the other side of the fear of the Lord and that is the fear of just being away from him, of being separate from him, of being outside his will, of doing something that displeases him. You just want to make him smile and say, yes, you did it. You did exactly what my spirit told you to do. Well done, good and faithful servant. You know, and 2 Corinthians says, Observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vermin desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. And I ask myself, have I given the same amount of attention, zeal, desire, dedication to spend time with my Jesus? You know, Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The best part of this is it isn't even complicated. You know, the last couple of years, it's... Yes, it's been an invested time, but I'm seeing the fruit of it now. I'm hearing the spirit more clearly, and it's just simply a return to first love. It's a passion for Christ. 
It's a desire in your heart to say, Jesus, I am drawing closer to you today. I'm going to think about you throughout my day. I'm going to sit there and I'm going to say, Jesus, I give you my attention and I worship you. Just throughout the day. Just letting him know that you know that he's there. And you know, it's drawing closer saying, I'm going to sit there, but I'm also going to go out and I'm going to prove this love with an action. I'm going to consistently read your love letter every day. I'm going to make no provision for my flesh. I'm going to set aside time every day to sit with you one-on-one. And I'm not going to ask you for anything. And I'm not going to cancel when I get a better offer. I'm going to make a time and I'm going to stick to it and I'm going to be there. I'm going to simply praise you, the sacrifice of praise. It's a beautiful thing. So many times in my life I've just praised him. And then I've seen the fruit of it the next day for whatever that situation is. Praise does something wonderful in the spirit realm. You know, it's saying, I'm going to have a servant heart like you, Jesus. So tell me where there's sin in my life. Tell me where the potter's hand needs to mould and sculpt me so that my character is refined enough to do the work that you had planned. I want to open that book when I get to heaven and go, yep, I followed that plan. I did what you asked. I did what was expected. I'm going to help you by loving others the way you first loved me. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to bring you fruit. And I really think that where this starts, this is how we draw more brides for Christ. Because our love will be genuine. We will know him. We will know that love and we'll be able to pull. Our cups will overflow. We won't have bitterness and frustration because we've sat with him and we've been filled and we've got enough for others. Our cup can overflow. And I think this is why Jesus told the parable about the ten virgins. And he said five, five had the extra oil. Their cups were filled and ready for the wedding. You know, this was actually a real thing for Hebrew brides. Towards the end of the expected waiting time, the woman would go out into the street and leave an oil lamp burning through the night, just in case her bridegroom was going to return. And so she'd be ready. And so to sum it up today, you know, God is known by so many names. And when you come to him as the Almighty or the Most High, you know, you're coming with praise of that name and how you relate to him. If you are coming to him as the good shepherd, you know that he provides and he's protecting you. So you come with humility and you just say thank you. You come with thanks and praise. If you're coming to him as the king of kings or the lord of lords, you're saying, I'm coming with obedience. But when you come to him as the bridegroom, what he really wants is your heart. When you, if you want to meet him as the bridegroom, come with surrender. That's what he really wants you to do. So I want to finish now with prayer and say, Father, thank you for choosing us. Thank you for choosing us as the bride for your beloved son. You know, the spirit and the bride say, come in revelation. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, sanctify and cleanse this church with the washing of water by the word that you might present her to yourself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but we would be holy and without blemish. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would all be filled with a renewed zeal and desire for you, where we put you as the centre of our life, pursuing you with those beautiful dove eyes. May we work 
our, our salvation with fear and trembling before you. And I just ask, Jesus, that you would pierce through any religion and cut right to our heart so that when the marriage of the Lamb has come, that his wife, us, that we have made ourselves ready. Amen.